I'm Ethan Craig. I'm a rheumatologist and assistant professor of clinical medicine at uh, University of Pennsylvania, where I work primarily in the spondyloarthritis center. I'm also cross-appointed at the VA Medical Center in Philadelphia as a staff rheumatologist there. And today, I'm hoping you know this, but we're going to be talking primarily about axial involvement in spondyloarthritis. And we're going to do this via patient-centered exploration using several cases I've run across in my own clinic. So quick disclosures, this presentation was sponsored by Novartis Pharmaceutical Corporation. I have been compensated for my time, but we will not be speaking about any specific products here or any specific treatments. So hopefully that should not be any major issue. Otherwise I have no other disclosures. So let's talk about a quick outline here of what we're gonna be going into. So the first thing we're gonna do here is talk about some common features of spondyloarthritis, both from the clinical standpoint and from the standpoint of pathophysiology. We're then gonna move on and speak more specifically about how to recognize axial involvement and the patient burden involved with axial involvement in spondyloarthritis is where we're really gonna turn over to some of our patient cases. We're then gonna to try to focus some on imaging and how we image, how we go about imaging axial involvement in spondyloarthritis. And finally, we're gonna talk a little bit about the challenge of defining specifically axial spondyloarthritis in psoriatic arthritis or axial PSA. Throughout this, we're going to be taking some focus on trying to tease out the question of whether axial spondyloarthritis and psoriatic arthritis is truly a distinct entity, whether axial PSA is truly its own entity, and how it may differ from the more traditionally seen axial spa. So to get started here, it's worthwhile stepping back a little bit. So as we were first coming to understand rheumatological disease in kind of the early 1900s, the early nosology of arthritis actually pretty much lumped together ankylosing spondylitis, psoriatic arthritis, and rheumatoid arthritis, all as kind of just different phenotypes of rheumatoid arthritis. And that only started to change in the mid-1900s. In 1973, Molin Wright put out the initial description of psoriatic arthritis, and it first became recognized as a distinct entity from rheumatoid arthritis. Around the same time, HLA-B27 gene was identified to be strongly associated with ankylosing spondylitis, and that differential association started to draw ankylosing spondylitis into its own subgroup. And over time, what became recognized is that these two diseases, psoriatic arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis. And as time went on, inflammatory bowel disease associated arthritis and reactive arthritis were all identified to have these very common overlapping features. So these features have come to be the definition have come to really define what we consider a spondyloarthritis. And so some of these shared features we're going to be talking about today. So clearly psoriasis is strongly associated with multiple presentations of spondyloarthritis. All of the diseases I just mentioned have a strong association with uveitis to varying degrees, which much higher degrees, for example, in IBD arthritis or ankylosing spondylitis as opposed to psoriatic arthritis. All of them are associated with some degree of sacroiliitis and spondylitis. Peripheral joint involvement occurs in varying rates. So for example, in ankylosing spondylitis, the rate of peripheral joint involvement is somewhat lower than what we see in psoriatic arthritis. But we all know we certainly see patients with ankylosing spondylitis that have quite prominent peripheral joint involvement, often in an oligoarthritic pattern. One of the hallmarks of this, as we've come to understand, is really enthesitis, inflammation at tendon insertion points, ligamentous insertion points, the specific enthesial organ which is located throughout the body. And enthesitis, stereotypically involving heel pain, is common in all of these diseases. 
Each of these diseases is also epidemiologically associated with an increased risk of inflammatory bowel disease, and inflammatory bowel disease itself, we know, is associated with a high rate of spondyloarthritis. Traditionally, these diseases have a very good response to NSAIDs, to the point that this isn't used in the classification criteria, and often they are associated with a positive family history, and so psoriatic arthritis certainly has a familial component, as we know does ankylosing spondylitis, at least via the HLA-B27 genes, but likely via other kind of polygenic risks. So all of these kind of features have come to really define spondyloarthritides as a group. So the spondyloarthritis spectrum is the way I like to think about it, is composed of two kind of broad subgroups, and then we can subdefine from there. So the first is axial spondyloarthritis, and you can think of this as basically those spondyloarthritides that primarily involve the spine. And the second is peripheral spondyloarthritis, those spondyloarthritides that primarily involve the peripheral joints. The hallmark, the paradigm of axial spondyloarthritis is ankylosing spondylitis. Now, ankylosing spondylitis has come to have some terminology changes around it. We now largely see that this is radiographic axial spondyloarthritis, so patients with axial disease that have x-ray changes, radiographic changes and appears that radiographic axial spondyloarthritis, as defined by the ASAS classification criteria, is essentially a one-to-one -one overlap with ankylosing spondylitis by the modified New York criteria. Now, the second group within axial spondyloarthritis is this non-radiographic AXPA, or NRAXPA, which is just defined as axial spondyloarthritis, but without x-ray changes. And so it's important to note that there are a couple different ways you can get this sort of diagnosis. The one is to have no x-ray changes, but to have MRI evidence of sacroiliitis or spondylitis. The second is to have no x-ray changes, no MRI changes, but to have clinical features that are strongly suggestive. This is perhaps where a patient with inflammatory back pain, a positive HLA-B27, history of uveitis, and some evidence of enthesitis may fit in this kind of non-radiographic spa. So this is a fairly heterogeneous group. It's still not terribly well-defined as far as what the likelihood is of these patients progressing to radiographic AXPA or whether some of these are just an entirely different disease. Now, traditionally, we think of psoriatic arthritis as kind of the paragon of peripheral spondyloarthritis as involving the small joints, often oligoarthritic, but often polyarthritis, almost mimicking RA. And so we more often think of psoriatic arthritis as a peripheral spa. But there's certainly a subset that overlaps into this axial spondyloarthritis phenotype. And this is really where we're going to focus today is on this axial PSA or axial psoriatic arthritis. So let's step back a little bit. Based on these kind of subgroups, we can sort of work backwards from some of this common clinical presentation. And we're going to talk just a little bit about pathways and pathophysiology. So the triggering event for spondyloarthritis is likely an interplay of several features, which have shown potentially to have a role in this initiation. So first of all, a gut microbiome does certainly appear to play a role in the pathophysiology of these diseases. This is apparent from data in inflammatory bowel disease. It's apparent in data from spondyloarthritis. And in fact, animal models that have demonstrated onset of disease uh, of spondyloarthritis in animals that are HLA-B27 positive, if you keep them notobiotic, in other words, with no gut bacteria, and reintroduce gut bacteria, you can introduce basically spondyloarthritis phenotype. 
Um, that provides fairly strong evidence that the gut microbiome in and of itself is playing some role in disease pathogenesis. Certainly, we always think about HLA-B27. We know that there's a strong association with many of these diseases, although the specific way in which this causes disease is still not entirely clear. There are several theories, including misfolding of HLA-B27, leading to an unfolded protein response, which leads to release of IL-23. There's evidence about homodimerization of HLA-B27, leading to activation of this IL-23 phenotype. Whatever the case, HLA-B27 very clearly plays a role in kind of the initiation of this disease, which we know just from familial studies. Finally, there uh, appears to be a role of biomechanical stress. And what we see is that chronic minimal damage at the enthesis, combined with some degree of aberrant sensing of tissue stress, may provoke this gamma delta T cell activation within the enthesis and result in inflammation. So whatever the case, the combination of these factors leads to a common pathway, which leads to increase in IL-23 production. Now, IL-23 is one of the hallmark cytokines that is strongly associated with spondyloarthritis and with psoriatic arthritis. The release of IL-23 does seem to be the major driver here, but then in turn, that activates these enthesis resident T cells via the IL-23 receptor which lead them to differentiate into Th17 phenotypes, leading to production of IL-22 and IL-17, which are the effector cytokines, which we see uh, playing a major role in spondyloarthritis. Ultimately, these increase the rate of increased production of TNF, and ultimately this kind of hallmark combination of inflammation leading to erosive changes in bone loss, combined with osteoproliferation and new bone formation leading to fusion across the vertebrae and other bones, which is the calling card of spondyloarthritis. All right. So coming out of that kind of brief detour into pathophysiology, how common, in fact, is axial involvement in psoriatic arthritis itself? So the good news, at least from our thinking, is that isolated axial involvement in PSA is actually relatively unusual. So um, this occurs really only in about two to 5% of patients with psoriatic arthritis. So a small subset of patients with PSA will have this kind of solely axial disease. The remainder will have some combination of peripheral arthritis with axial involvement. So setting that aside though, axial involvement is actually quite common and it's likely under-recognized in PSA. So the prevalence here likely depends upon several factors. So that includes the stage of the disease, it includes the duration of the disease, the population in which we're looking, and then particular definitions that are used among other features. So prevalence, first of all, does appear to increase with disease duration. So what we see is that in early psoriatic arthritis, estimates of prevalence range between 5 and about 28%. And long-standing PSA, though, if you look at these patients over a long enough time frame, we see that the prevalence of axial involvement rises to over 70%. And so somewhere in between with these kind of middle groups, about 25 to 28% kind of middle duration of about five years. Now, if you look at patients who in early PSA, did not have evidence of axial involvement. So these are patients with peripheral involvement, but if we've looked and no clear evidence of axial involvement, over a long enough time span, over about 10 years, at least about 15% of these patients will develop axial PSA. So over time, this becomes more common. It may not be a presenting feature, and it's unusual to be a presenting feature in the absence of axial disease. Now, the definitions also play a very significant role here. This has been a major issue in thinking about axial PSA, and it's one of the reasons why axial PSA is still unfortunately relatively poorly defined and somewhat understudied. So we can think about, for example, how you might think about defining axial PSA. 
Well, if you're looking at your study, do you think of us as patients with PSA that have back pain? Well, then you're both going to catch a very broad net. Back pain is very common in the general population and likely more common than axial involvement. But you're also going to miss a lot of people with PSA because we know that only about 50% of patients with axial PSA actually have back pain referable to the axial PSA. So you're actually going to miss a fair number of patients that have axial involvement if you're just going on symptoms. In addition, you could think about going maybe with just radiographic changes. But that's missing a whole population of patients with, for example, non-radiographic disease, with MRI-evident disease that don't have the kind of x-ray findings that are typical. You could think about defining as MRI, again, has its own issues. A lot of early studies really looked at the modified New York criteria, which requires the presence of sacroiliitis specifically. But what we have come to find in axial PSA is that sacroiliitis, as we'll see, is actually less common. It only occurs in about 50-ish percent of patients with axial PSA, much less common than we see in, say, ankylosing spondylitis, where sacroiliitis is almost uniform. In axial PSA, patients can have isolated spondylitis absent sacroiliitis. And so if you define it only only as sacroiliitis, you may miss a substantial portion of patients with axial PSA. So we'll come back to touch on all of this, but in my opinion, we still have a lot of work to do on this space to define the process itself and really to determine precisely how common it is. So along those same lines, it's important to note that the criteria for psoriatic arthritis and AXPA as they exist overlap very substantially. So the CASPAR criteria, which is the criteria that we use largely for classification for research purposes of psoriatic arthritis, includes in its entry criteria evidence of spinal inflammation and includes several features that also occur in the ASAS criteria for axial spondyloarthritis, including current psoriasis or personal history of psoriasis, dactylitis. Similarly, the ASAS criteria for AXPA require back pain with onset less than 45 years old. That could be considered a evidence of inflammatory disease in the spine. It requires a sacroiliitis on imaging. Again, that's spinal involvement. And these patients must have either arthritis, enthesitis, dactylitis, or psoriasis, all of which also occur within the CASPAR criteria. So it's very easy to see that in patients in, within research studies, within trials, if they're recruited by, say, PSA, many of them actually will also meet criteria for axial SPA. And vice versa. Many of the patients in the axial spa studies may also meet criteria for PSA. And so teasing these apart can be very challenging. Now that we've noted how heavily these overlap, I want to start to hone in on a few patient cases. So here we have three patients who have actually seen my clinic. These are obviously stock photos, not people I've actually met. I want to start by talking about their particular cases and use them to think about some of the similarities and differences we may actually see between PSA and kind of more stereotypical axial spondyloarthritis. All right. So Eric is not an actual patient, but he is a 35-year-old man who is presented to my office with six years of low back and buttock pain. He has more recently developed some cervical and kind of mid-thoracic pain, which is new for him. Now, the reason he actually came to my office is that he had presented to ophthalmology with new onset of uveitis, and on review of systems, they noted the back pain did exactly what they should do and chased down labs and imaging and sent him over to our office for evaluation for likely ankylosing spondylitis. He did note that he had mild psoriasis, and we found a few small patches of psoriasis on examination, but he had no prior history of peripheral arthritis, no history of enthesitis, no history of dactylitis, and he had no personal or family history of inflammatory bowel disease. John, a little bit younger at 26 years of age, presented primarily with three years of neck, chest wall pain, and stiffness. 
Now, he had a one-year history also of scalp psoriasis and had had this troublesome toenail fungus over the last six to 12 months over multiple toenails and had seen a couple providers and had been treating on multiple courses of antifungals without any response. He ultimately ended up seeing an orthopedist for the neck pain who sent him through to our office for evaluation. He denied any synovitis, any enthesitis, or any dactylitis history. Finally, we have Anna, who is a 41-year-old woman. She has one-year history of actually low back pain, and she's had associated with this some arthritis of the bilateral ankles. She had actually initially presented with substantial edema and swelling around the ankles, which led to evaluation for heart disease, which did find some degree of non-ischemic cardiomyopathy in addition to a prior history of CVA. She additionally has had dactylitis of two to three toes. She's had persistent heel pain at the Achilles tendon insertion, and has had chronic low back pain uh, superimposed on this kind of more acute onset a year ago of this new low back pain. So what can we do in thinking about these patients to differentiate these presentations from kind of more nonspecific low back pain? What makes their presentation more concerning? Well, other than the associated features, which we're going to come to in a little bit, it's also important to think about the characteristics of the back pain itself, which we'll disclose. So the first kind of back pain I like to lump into is this mechanical back pain. So mechanical back pain is primarily pain that arises intrinsically from spinal joints, intervertebral discs, surrounding soft tissue, including the musculature. Now, this may be chronic, but more commonly it's acute and often is self-limiting. Traditionally, we're taught about a six-week duration or less in most patients. Now, what's important about this is that mechanical back pain, unfortunately, is actually the cause is identified in a relative minority of patients. About 80 to 85% of patients have no clear cause identified for this back pain and ends up being kind of called non-specific back pain. In a small minority, in that minority, we may find a clear pathology, be it, uh, you know, spondylosis, be it a pinched nerve, et cetera, et cetera. But a minority of cases actually have a cause. And I suspect that a lot of times that's because they either have some muscular strain, some ligamentous pathology that we just really can't image or identify. Whatever the case, this group is much, much more common than what we call inflammatory back pain. You know, inflammatory back pain has typically insidious onset. It's usually before the age of 40, and it tends to be traditionally thought to be due to inflammation of structures around the vertebrae, the joints of the spine, the antheses of the spine, and is more commonly, note, not uniformly, associated with inflammatory disease. So typically we think of axial spondyloarthritis within this realm of rheumatology and typically manifests as chronic back pain, usually lasting three months or longer and often localized really to the low back or buttocks, likely reflecting sacroiliac involvement. Now it's this latter kind of pain that is important for us to be able to pick up and it's important to identify in these patients in raising suspicion for axial spondyloarthritis. If you must remember one mnemonic for inflammatory back pain, although there are many, many criteria out there with variable accuracy, the eye pain mnemonic is good. So I is for insidious onset, P for pain at night, importantly, typically late at night and with improvement upon getting up and moving. Age of onset typically is less than age 40. They tend to have improvement with exercise and lack of improvement with rest. These are patients that you know, have their pain that's worst as they're laying down or sitting down, have to get up and walk a mile to get it to go away. Notice there isn't prolonged morning stiffness in this definition that can occur in either situation. Now, four or more of these being positive is suggestive of inflammatory, uh, inflammatory back pain. Now, 
It's important to note though, that while these criteria are helpful for screening, and you should pass these on, for example, to your primary care colleagues to try to improve the screening processes and try to pick up more of these patients. Unfortunately, these criteria actually don't perform terribly well in patients with axial PSA or in patients with inflammatory bowel disease. Now, the reason for that is probably twofold. There's certainly different clinical characteristics, which we'll talk about a little later, but also importantly, the pretest probability, simply put, in somebody with psoriasis or with inflammatory bowel disease is so high for an inflammatory etiology of back pain that it's very hard to rule it out entirely based solely on these criteria. It takes more really investigation to be able to say, mm, this back pain is, is not of inflammatory characteristics. So, these are helpful, but I urge you in patients with known psoriasis, especially known psoriatic arthritis, not to rely on this too heavily as your screen to rule out axial disease. So let's come back to these patients. So Eric is our 35-year-old with mid and low back pain. He had insidious onset at age 29. He has prolonged morning stiffness. He has no improvement with rest. He improves substantially with exercise. He has frequent nocturnal symptoms, which wake him up almost every night. And unfortunately, has had minimal improvement with multiple courses of NSAIDs. John is our 26-year-old with neck pain, who had insidious onset of pain in his early 20s. He has had prolonged morning stiffness, no improvement with rest, improvement with exercise, no nocturnal symptoms, fortunately, and has had actually very good control with NSAIDs. And then we have Anna, who's our 41-year-old. She has had insidious onset of pain as well. She has prolonged morning stiffness also, no improvement with rest. She has improvement with exercise, no nocturnal symptoms. And unfortunately, because of the cardiomyopathy, has been unable to take NSAIDs. But interestingly, was started on prednisone by an outside provider and actually had substantial improvement in her back pain with that. So let's talk a little bit more about identifying features of axial disease in spondyloarthritis. So we already mentioned inflammatory back pain, and I already cautioned you somewhat about overusing the definitions of inflammatory back pain, specifically in patients with high pretest probability for axial disease, including those with psoriasis and IBD. Stiffness is a very, very common complaint. And often this manifests as morning stiffness or stiffness throughout the day, or finding that as they sit, they have to get up and move around to loosen up. I find that this is actually more common in my practice than, than patients that are complaining of pain necessarily. Many patients I've seen have been missed for years because their complaint was not back pain, but was back stiffness or loss of mobility in the back. And that links to this kind of restriction in spinal mobility that we see. And so remember in modified New York criteria for ankylosing spondylitis, we think about this substantial restriction of lumbar mobility, uh, both in the lateral plane and in the anterior, uh, anterior plane with flexion at the lumbar spine. Elevated ESR and CRP are features we think about commonly, but I caution you to not lean too heavily on them. So I like to think of them as part of the picture here, but a large number of patients will not have elevated ESR and CRP. And importantly, keep in mind the CRP is more sensitive. So we, we see more elevations of CRP than we do with of ESR. But a normal CRP in the right circumstance should not be used to entirely rule out the possibility of axial disease. HLA-B27 is a risk factor for both axial spondyloarthritis and is a risk factor for axial involvement, period. But the rate of HLA-B27 positivity varies. And so in ankylosing spondylitis or radiographic AXPA and non-radiographic AXPA, the rate of HLA-B27 positivity is very high, with about 80% of patients having a positive HLA-B27. As a result, it can be used as a screening test to some extent to rule out disease in somebody with modest to low pretest probability. 
In patients with psoriatic arthritis, HLA-B27 is a risk factor for axial disease, but is not nearly positive in the rates that it is in ankylosing spondylitis. And so because that positivity rate is lower, you cannot use it to rule out axial disease in the setting of psoriatic arthritis. So let's look at some of the clinical workup for these patients. So again, Eric was our 35-year-old with mid to low back pain. He has no family history of spondyloarthritis, psoriasis, or IBD. He had substantially limited spinal mobility. This gentleman at 35 had a modified Schober's test of less than one centimeter. He had lateral lumbar flexion of six centimeters into both sides, and his occipital wall was a full seven centimeters. It's a very, very markedly impaired range of motion, especially for a 35-year-old. He did have a positive HLA-B27, and his CRP was elevated at 2.7 mg per deciliter. John, our 26-year-old with neck pain, had a family history of psoriasis and personal history. On exam, he had pitting and onycholysis of multiple of his toenails and did have scalp psoriasis. He had normal spinal mobility, though, but did have tenderness really focally over about the T4 to T6 spinous processes, right dead center in the midline. He was HLA-B27 negative, but did have an elevated CRP. And because of some imaging features, which we'll see, we did check an RF and CCP, which were negative. Anna was our 41-year-old with one year of low back pain and cardiomyopathy. She also had no family history of spondyloarthritis, psoriasis, or IBD. She did have incidentally found scalp psoriasis. This was one of those patients who didn't really know she had it until we went digging for it. She had dactylitis of the right second toe, clear-cut synovitis of the bilateral ankles, and impaired spinal mobility with a modified Schober's test of about four centimeters, but otherwise had normal metrics. Her HLA-B27 in this case was positive, and she had a normal CRP of a 0.4. All of these patients had substantial burden, and these are modified quotes from what these patients talked to me about. Eric was a baggage handler who could no longer bend over to even tie his shoes, much less work, and was finding that he was unable to keep up at work and needed to be out on disability. Unfortunately, because of his inability to work at home, his marriage was substantially strained, and his wife was extremely upset with him and had been very depressed because of this pain and loss of function. John worked at a computer primarily, and as a result, was unable to sit still for prolonged periods of time and was worried this was going to get worse. His mother had died the year before of cancer and was worried that he was going to be disabled from this within the next couple of years. Anna was 41 and she was a very active person, used to run every morning, go to the gym after work, but she was so stiff now in the mornings and after work was so stiff after prolonged sitting that she really couldn't bring herself to do it and found that she was substantially limited by pain in lower back and hips. All of these patients had marked burden of disease, very substantial impact on quality of life. That's reflected really in their disease activity scores here. You can see all of these patients had a high pain visual analog score in the 40 to 50 range. All of them had active disease based on the BASDI with 7, 5, and 6. All of them with relatively active disease based on the functional index and with the least impacted being John at 26, who was coping pretty well and mind you had good control with NSAIDs for the most part. And all of them had a high disease activity based on the ASDAS. So despite the fact that they have very disparate features, all of them certainly have highly active disease. So let's talk about how we gauge disease using imaging in these diseases. So first, let's look at x-rays. So an important reminder that Really what we're looking for on x-ray here, just like in rheumatoid arthritis, where we're looking for erosion specifically on x-ray, here with axial disease, the x-ray is able to show us a relatively limited number of features. 
So we can see syndesmophytes, we can say sacroiliitis in some patients, and we can see some evidence of spondylitis. You may see shiny corners or erosive changes in the anterior aspect of the vertebrae. You may see squaring of the lumbar vertebrae. You may see more typical findings of loss of lumbar lordosis, which is unfortunately not specific. But really what we're looking for are these features, syndesmophytes, spondylitis, and sacroiliitis. Now, these may differ between psoriatic arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis. So in psoriatic arthritis, we see some very atypical features. Often we see these kind of bulky, non-marginal syndesmophytes, as opposed to these more fine marginal syndesmophytes that we typically are trying to look for in ankylosing spondylitis or axial spondyloarthritis. Oftentimes in PSA, we have less symmetrical and less severe sacroiliitis more typically grade two to three as opposed to grade three to four. And it's more often asymmetric. And so these patients may even have normal SI joints in the setting of rather advanced spondylitic disease. In PSA, we have more frequent fusion of the cervical facet joints, whereas in ankylosing spondylitis, the fusion is more typical in the lumbar area. Ankylosing spondylitis, we think of working its way upwards, whereas psoriatic arthritis, as I mentioned, can skip, it can involve specific areas with spondylitis only, even absent sacroiliitis and absent lumbar spine involvement. As a result, I typically advise, and in somebody with psoriatic arthritis, whereas somebody in ankylosing spondylitis that may have full back pain, that may have back pain you know, from the bottom to the neck, I might get focus on SI joints. And if negative, say it's less likely they have ankylosing spondylitis. In psoriatic arthritis, you really have to image most of the spine to have a feel for whether there's axial involvement or not. So MRI can detect many more findings and is much more sensitive for many of these findings. So this includes findings of sacroiliitis on MRI, which on MRI, we're really looking for bone marrow edema, evidence of erosions, evidence of ankylosis or subchondral sclerosis. We can see changes of spondylitis, including things like Romanus lesions or pseudodiscovering aseptic discitis. We can see focal erosive changes much more sensitively than we can see on x-ray. Evidence of synovitis and then evidence of bone marrow edema, which is a very helpful aspect of the MRI, which really you can't get any sense of on x-rays. So in PSA, this is a typical finding on the sacroiliac joint. What we're seeing here is typical bone marrow edema, and you can see some degree of irregularity along that joint as well, suggestive of erosive changes. Here we can see evidence of spondylitis with a shiny corner, anterior and erosive changes, and then likely a aseptic discitis. Here we can see, again, in the ankylosing spondylitis, we see a bone marrow edema, and here would be a typical kind of deep lesion, very extensive marrow edema. Importantly, though, regardless of your MRI or X-ray findings, it's very important to remember that the burden of disease in non-radiographic AXPA is really comparable to ankylosing spondylitis. I think we have an unfortunate habit of thinking of it of non-radiographic AXPA or patients that don't have X-ray findings as having less severe disease. And in fact, when you look at patient-reported outcomes, the severity of non-radiographic AXPA is really quite comparable to that of radiographic disease or ankylosing spondylitis. And what you can see here is that these patients have similar BASDIs, similar BASFI, functional index, similar pain and fatigue scores, and similar global assessments of arthritis. So let's look at the imaging from these patients that we've seen. And again, these are actual images from our clinic. So starting with Eric, who is our gentleman with mid-thoracic and low back pain with marked limitation of range of motion, we can see here, this gentleman could be a textbook for ankylosing spondylitis. You can see he has uh, fusion across much of the lumbar and thoracic spine with these thin syndesmophytes throughout. 
we can see as extensive sacroiliitis with near fusion of both SI joints. On the C-spine, we can see some of the lower C-spine has evidence of syndesmophyte formation as well. This patient has quite advanced disease. Okay, here's John. So as a reminder, John is our 26-year-old gentleman who has a history of neck pain. I mentioned that he was referred to from his orthopedist, and the reason he was referred was this imaging. So what we'll start with is his x-ray here. His SI joint film is totally stone-cold normal. No evidence of sacroiliitis here. Not surprising, perhaps, because he had very little low back pain to speak of. What we see on the neck, though, is substantial on stir sequencing, substantial bone marrow edema uh, in the dens. And on T1 sequence here, you can see a frank erosion in the dens with actual panis formation in this area. And what's also interesting is if you look at his thoracic spine, this is a stir sequence where we can see on the spinous processes, there's bone marrow edema, and specifically increased bone marrow edema at the thesial insertion points at the tips of the spinous processes. This is why we had an RF and CCP on him. All right, for the 41-year-old female, Anna, who again presented with chronic low back pain for about a year, what we see here is her x-ray. There was some question of maybe a little bit of a sclerosis, but I would say this x-ray is essentially a normal SI joint. But on our MRI, what we can see is rather is evidence of uh, marrow edema on stir sequence. And I don't know if your screen is big enough to see it, but along the SI joint on T1 sequencing, we can see erosive change and an irregularity, primarily of this right side. The left was actually relatively normal. And we see similarly on this image, uh, really bone marrow edema primarily on that right side. So just to pin down, imaging is very important for the diagnosis of these diseases. And really, this has to revolve around a close relationship between rheumatology and radiology. You really need to be able to bounce these images off your radiology colleagues. Imaging results are very important for proper diagnosis and prognosis, but your clinicians have to be wary of nonspecific findings. There is a recent paper in 2018, too, actually, looking at nonspecific bone marrow edema, even in normal patients. What they found was that in normal patients, upwards of 20% of patients may meet a ASAS criteria for sacroiliitis based on bone marrow edema on MRI. This was even more pronounced in patients that were athletes, postpartum patients, et cetera, who often had at least a couple areas of marrow edema. So it's very important both to talk to your radiologist about what exactly they're seeing that they're calling sacroiliitis and to make sure that it fits with the clinical phenotype, that it fits with the clinical characterization before calling the sacroiliitis. So there are a few points to consider as well. Always think about which images will provide the requisite information, x-ray, MRI. X-ray may not be sufficient in somebody that has high pretest probability for axial spondyloarthritis, but a negative x-ray. Cost effectiveness plays a role. And then very importantly, would this imaging significantly alter management? So for example, if you have a patient with psoriatic arthritis that has severe psoriasis and is going to be on a biologic anyway for their psoriasis, would the presence or absence of axial disease significantly alter your choice of biologics? That's an important consideration to make. So we mentioned that the definitions of axial PSA are really lacking still. And we saw that in how that played out in a couple of our patients. And really, fortunately, there is some work being done on this, but it's still really under development. 
So axial PSA patients differ from patients with ankylosing spondylitis with psoriasis, both demographically, genetically, clinically, and radiographically, but there's currently no real definition for axial PSA. So fortunately, the ASAS and GRAPA are currently really working to develop a definition and actually had a process that was presented as a poster at UR this year in which they were starting to try to pin down what features clinicians see as most important for thinking about axial PSA. The number one was maybe obviously imaging features and axial involvement, which obviously we have to better pin down what imaging features are uh, characteristic, and then the type of back pain that they are experiencing. I think this is going to be an active area of research going forward, and it's going to need a lot of work in improving our trial data in these patients. So these patients do appear somewhat different than those with more traditional ankylosing spondylitis. So we mentioned that demographically, patients with axial PSA do differ from AXPA. They tend to be older at presentation and at diagnosis. So I always tell my fellows that, you know, if you have a 55-year-old that presents with relatively new inflammatory back pain and sacroiliitis, that patient needs a very, very good skin exam to look for psoriasis and also to look for inflammatory bowel disease, because those are going to be the ones that actually have older onset of disease typically. They are more likely to be female than male. In ankylosing spondylitis, we know there's a male predominance. Patients with axial PSA are four times less likely to be HLA-V27 positive. As I mentioned, you can't use it to rule out disease. Clinically, people with axial PSA tend to have less back pain, lower BASME scores, so lower metrics, meaning better metrics, better axial disease activity scores. They have a better physician global assessments, although that might just mean that we're doing a bad job of assessing their axial disease. They tend to be treated with fewer biologics and have worse peripheral arthritis. So these patients tend to have more prominent peripheral disease with similar prevalence of emphysitis. Radiographically, I already mentioned that they are less likely to have sacroiliitis, and if they do have sacroiliitis, they're more likely to have lower grades of sacroiliitis. So this is my final assessment of these cases, which I think largely agrees with how you were all thinking about it. Eric, our gentleman with low back pain, uveitis, psoriasis, extensive spinal involvement. This is a patient I would say is more consistent with axial spondyloarthritis with radiographic disease. This is your textbook example of ankylosing spondylitis. And even though he had psoriasis, I would just call him ankylosing spondylitis with some mild psoriasis. John, I think, is a textbook example of axial PSA. This is a patient who had no apparent sacroiliac involvement. He had quite significant psoriasis, including nail psoriasis, and has a more typical distribution for axial PSA. There are clear reports of this kind of cervical involvement in PSA mimicking rheumatoid arthritis, so that's kind of the diagnosis he landed with. And I think Anna is the perfect fence case. I think she is exactly as you were all split. I could flip a coin between calling her non-radiographic AXPA based on the imaging appearance and kind of the general presentation and positive HLMB27 or axial PSA based on the presence of psoriasis, dactylitis, and so on. And I think she's one of the ones that really sits right in the middle of these two diagnoses. So running a little over, but my couple take-home points here. First of all, in any spondyloarthritis, I urge you that choice of therapy really has to be guided by dominant and important manifestations. And if that's axial disease, then that really has to be the manifestation that guides your treatment. But it has to work with shared decision-making. So oftentimes we're making a trade-off between an agent that maybe is better for psoriasis versus an agent that maybe worked better their axial disease or their peripheral disease. And so shared decision-making is very crucial in these diseases. Axial disease often, though, is the most limiting piece. There are the fewest studied drugs that work in axial disease, 
And so it's often the most limiting piece of the puzzle, but it may not always be the most important from the patient perspective. And then compared to other domains of PSA, as I mentioned, there's less data, there are fewer clinical trials in this disease and fewer agents that are known to be effective. So it often is most restrictive. I would plug here, Novartis does have a PSA domain explorer, which is a very nice way of thinking about this. And if you are interested in getting some more information and getting better at imaging in these diseases, I would really plug Care Arthritis as an excellent kind of training module and learning to read x-rays and MRI in these cases. So in conclusion, full patient workup, important for identifying subtypes of spondyloarthritis and thinking about how to approach treatment. Axial involvement is an important domain of PSA, not one to be overlooked, and not only a feature of axial spa. And the goals of managing axial disease really are going to be reducing inflammation and preventing damage, alleviating symptoms, improving spinal mobility, preventing functional limitation, maintaining the ability of our patients to work, importantly, and really decreasing disease-associated complications.